0: Welcome to The Cool Tools Show. I'm Mark Frauenfelder, Editor-in-Chief of Cool Tools, a website of tool recommendations written by our readers. You can find us at cool-tools.org. I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Kelly, founder of Cool Tools. Hey, Kevin. Hey, it's great to be here. In each episode of The Cool Tools Show, Kevin and I talk to a guest about some of his or her favorite uncommon and uncommonly good tools they think others should know about. Our guest this week is Jorge Camacho. Jorge is a strategic designer, foresight strategist and lecturer based in Mexico City. He's a research affiliate at Institute for the Future, a co-founder of Diagonal, which is a futures design studio based in Mexico City, and a board member of the Plurality University Network. You can find him as J underscore Camacho on Twitter and on Medium. And we'll have a link to uh, to Jorge's Twitter. So uh, if my spelling threw you off, you'll, you'll find it there. Hey, Jorge, how you doing?
1: All, all, good. Thanks for inviting me, Mark Kevin. It's really great to be here.
2: Oh, we're really enthusiastically eager for your recommendations and to hear about what you're up to.
1: It's been very, very fun to prepare for this.
2: Oh, good, yeah. good. So, okay, so
1: I, I
0: am glad about your first tool because I am a user of Pocket, but I don't think I've ever talked about
2: it. But no, yeah, I something so, about it. Describe yeah, what it is. It. Uh, for us who don't, like myself, who don't know anything about it. Oh, what is excellent. Pocket?
1: I'm glad that uh, I'm the first to recommend it in the, in the podcast. So uh, Pocket, who th- which actually was called, when they originally launched, I think in 2015, it was called Read It Later. So I think the, the original purpose of the tool is to basically save links or Save articles uh, in order to read them later.
2: Okay, so so this is an article that you're reading on the web. So is this like a so is this for if you're on the phone or on the exactly. desktop? Okay. Yeah,
1: I mean, some of the I mean, so a, a few of the features that I really enjoy is the fact that you can obviously you can uh, use it on a, on a, on your browser. Uh, you can use it on the on the mobile app. And also for the browser, you can install uh, these um, extensions. And what that means is that uh, no matter where you are, uh, you know, reading or scrolling or, you know, in general getting uh, access to the web, there is always like a one or two click route to save whatever you want to save for later. So I have uh, set for myself this workflow where, even if I'm just like uh, walking around and I'm scrolling on Twitter or t- drinking coffee, you know, like very informally, I can very quickly uh, save a link. Um, and and also, whenever you save a link, you can add tags, which is very important uh, for what I use it uh, for. Basically, a, a few years ago, when I started using it, uh, I I first started using it as a way to, you know, for for its purpose, you know, to save articles. But then I realized that I wasn't really reading the articles later; I was just saving them. That's why—that's <laughs> yeah, what I do too. <laughs> exactly. I've I've told friends that I'm a like a digital content hoarder, you know, like uh-huh. <laughs> because I save so much, uh, and 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 gladly I don't have to keep so many magazines or newspapers just lying around the house. Um, but eventually, my use of the platform became more of a, uh, you know, more attached to my professional work, which involves, uh, you know, reading a lot of articles, but specifically saving a lot of, um, you know, these examples, what we call, uh, you know, like signals of change uh, that I may use later in uh, for for a project. So basically, these examples of innovations or interesting things happening anywhere in the world that we may uh, you know connect with other signals later to start to find you know ter- trends and all these things. Uh, so I, I realized that this was a very useful tool to to build a sort of a personal database of uh, of this type of content.
2: And so you're saving these and then you're adding a tag to help you basically categorize them or find them later. But generally, are they all going into one big folder or do you also have to uh, – so, so how do you find things later on um, yeah. after you've been doing this for years and years and years? Does it have a good so, search function
1: or – Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you can – I mean, um, Pocket itself has a, a very intuitive interface. Where you can search for things. Um, you can also uh, navigate your tags and then select specific tags. So, for example, I use, you know, like tags like uh, signals or, uh, you know, uh, Mexico or uh, privacy. And, uh, and very easily I can navigate and find those tags and then retrieve, so to speak, all the links that I've saved using those tags.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, how is it different from something like Evernote?
1: I think uh, in, I, I would say I, I also use Evernote. I use it more to take notes than to save links. Uh, there may be some functionality similar to Evernote that I haven't really used that would allow me to replicate this workflow. Um, but I also appreciate the simplicity of pocket, you know, the, the single minded focus on saving things as opposed to, you know, as, as opposed to Evernote and other more recent tools that allows you to save things while also, you know, annotating them or, or writing, uh, notes, et cetera. So, so the, the, the thing that I really appreciate is the simplicity and probably the, 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 the fact that I have just, uh, you know, become used to using this tool. Uh, whereas m- maybe there are others that could fulfill the same function.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I use Evernote, and I didn't even know you could annotate. I've never done that. I've only <laughs> <saved things. laughs>
0: One of the cool things about Pocket, and I think Evernote does it a little bit, Pocket's really great at it. Um, I, I see an article I'm interested in. I just click my little uh, browser extension. It saves yeah. it to Pocket, and then when I read it, it gives me a version that is typographically very simple oh, yeah. with the oh, images nice. and all the ads have been stripped out of it. Oh, okay. And so it's yeah. like, oh, it's very refreshing to read an it's article very that good.
1: way. Exactly. Right. It's very good to read. Uh, it's also as a reader, it's, uh, it's very useful. Something else that I've, that I've uh, done recently is that I have started using, um, you know, uh, if this then that mm-hmm. in, to build these little applets that connect pocket with other things so for example one of the things that were uh, pocket is not great at is to share you know to to share not just single articles but if i wanted to share my full library of articles for a specific topic uh, pocket is not great for that so something that i've done like a workaround that i've developed is to connect uh, pocket with my google account so that every time i save an article with with specific uh, tags it automatically also save the saves the article and and with a lot of uh, interesting you know metadata to uh, to a google spreadsheet so i can see you know the date even it extracts a small uh, picture from the article it includes the tags that i have added obviously the URL uh, as a uh, summary that you can pull from the from the specific website and and therefore I can have on the one hand like a automatic backup of my collection of articles and also a, um, a more easily shareable um database so to speak.
0: Okay, cool. Well that's cool. I didn't know you could do that. Pocket. Pocket. And and so um There's a free version that's Mm -hmm. fairly limited. But like you said here, it's uh, $45 a year for the full featured version. And I think it's like a a ton, if not unlimited, a whole bunch of articles can be stored.
1: And you can also um, save the content offline. So I think even if Mm -hmm. the original site or article disappears, you get a backup copy with a premium version.
0: Oh, that's great. Super useful. That's good. All right, so the next one is a uh, really cool one that, again, completely new to to me and probably
1: to our readers. Tell us about this. The second one is uh, a travel guitar. It's called the Baby Taylor BT-1 travel guitar. So, um, I mean, I I obviously uh, play the guitar. I've been playing Mm -hmm. it uh, since high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know, I'm probably not the only one that, uh, th- you know, that you start to get a little bit lazy unless obviously you are a practicing musician every day, uh, you start to get a little bit lazy and you start to find, le- uh, less and less moments throughout the day to pick up the guitar and play something. So I have a couple of electric guitars and amps and all, you know, all the things. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I feel not necessarily have all the time or I don't want to be hassled by, you know, connecting everything and really, you know, have a proper playing session. So, uh, for a while I, I wanted to have, uh, uh, just like a guitar lying around that I could quite easily pick up and play something even in between meetings, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and also recently my my teenage son started to to become interested and um even if he's you know he's uh tall and has big hands uh you know when you start to play you you it it feels much easier when you play with a small guitar
0: mm-hmm. so, because uh, because the frets aren't as far apart
1: the frets are as far apart and the the oh i forgot the the name in english but the, in general the whole uh post or I don't know how it's called but it's uh, it's a bit the neck is a mm-hmm. bit uh, thinner as well mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's easier for I know that a lot of people buy these travel guitars for kids as well mm-hmm. it's i mean as the name implies these are original design originally designed to to take them around for travels and I also sometimes do that I haven't really taken it you know on the road or something like traveling abroad or anything but I do travel you know inside mexico and 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 the most often travel i make is to a nearby country house and i've taken my electric guitar and amp before but again it's a bit of a hassle so you know all these things combine and and also in the context of the, of the pandemic i i i wanted to have a, a guitar and, and and pick it up i know that a lot of people started playing uh, an instrument or um or you know uh picked it up again so i i got this it's a it's a uh, the taylor bt1 i thought that it was going to to be more of a of a toy you know but mm-hmm. actually it sounds really good and um my kid is playing it and also i just have it literally next to where i am at any any time and it's quite easy to just pick it up and start so i've been uh trying to learn new songs and even tried to come up with my own idea, something that I was doing it that I wasn't doing that much uh, recently. So it's been sort of like a great one of these uh, great uh, things that you that that you get to make the the pandemic a bit more or the lockdown a and, bit more bearable. Can you tell me how how much smaller is it than a regular guitar? I think it's uh, it's three quarters of a regular guitar. I don't recall at the moment the specific measure but it feels a bit smaller.
2: And and is the fret and um, the strings the same length is just that the box is a little smaller or is it shorter overall? I mean is it kind of like shrunk like a miniature version or is it just some does it sound any
1: different? No, it's and no and and it's uh, it's the same length. I think it's mostly the body. Because if you were to change, I mean, there's probably a small difference in in terms of the length of the neck as well. But if you were to change that uh, 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 big time, you would then have to tune it different and and all that. But this is not the case. The the guitar is tuned in the same way as a regular guitar. You can play it uh, in the same way. Uh, So it's just, I think it's mostly the body that it's smaller. So it really doesn't feel um, that different from playing, playing a regular guitar, except for the fact that it's more comfortable. It's the body smaller, and you can carry it more easily. You can have it lying around, as I said, more easily than a regular guitar. And and overall, it feels more like a less of a less of a you know like a commitment or uh, you know to to play when you have a regular guitar or specifically uh, an electric guitar you really need to sort of like say, okay, now I'm going to play the guitar. Whereas this is something that you can just quite easily pick up.
0: It's very attractive too. It's just a nice clean uh, look. There's not a lot of ornamentation on it or, or you know, that pearl inlay. It's just, yeah. it's, it's really cool. I love the the very coloring simple. of it. And I see that the price is 379 US dollars. Um, and so that's like seems like a a reasonable price for a, a Taylor guitar.
1: Exactly, it's very affordable and and it sounds great. Uh, I think it's a, not only a good a good option for the case study that the, the case uh, you know the case that I just described you know my case, but um, it's also very good for someone that wants to start playing uh, without committing to a, a a more expensive instrument or you know. Okay. More professional
2: instrument. So, Hori, um, tell us about your your third um, tool.
1: Sure. So, the the third tool I picked is um, it's called the Mescalero glass. So this is a so an, another you know pandemic uh, you know uh, thing that I got into is um, spirits. So I've been uh, I've been. I mean, I, I've, I like uh, spirits, mostly whiskey uh, for a long time now. But uh, during the pandemic, uh, it's not that I've been drinking more. It's that I've <laughs> been, <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit, but not so much. It's, you know what, the, the thing is that I've been learning more about, uh, about uh, spirits. So I've been reading a lot. I've been watching a lot of YouTube. There's a bunch of great YouTube channels talking about different spirits and reviewing spirits and all that. And um, one of the cool things that I've uh, learned is that, uh, you know, having the proper glassware really mm-hmm. makes a difference when you are trying to enjoy a spirit rather than just drinking for socializing. Interesting. So the the taste, it change alters the taste. You know what? Not so much the taste, but the smell, oh. the aroma. And, mm. and that makes a, a big difference. If mm-hmm. you, if, if you think about it and if you experience it, really, most of the of the experience and the enjoyment from a nice uh, spirit in the, uh, as, as the, in the same way uh, as a wine comes from the smell. And actually, I think is, this applies to food in general. Uh, I remember that when I was a kid, I was really fussy with eating and, and my mom would offer me something to eat and I would just smell it. and Mm -hmm. and reject it. And my mom would would say, how do you know you don't like it if you haven't even tried it? And it's because, I mean, with the smell, I was already able to say that I wasn't going to like something. And I don't, (laughs) right? Have you experienced the same? Sure, sure. And it doesn't, I mean, obviously it doesn't apply to me or only to food. Uh, In um, you know, most uh, wine and spirits experts agree on the fact that I don't know, like a, br- a big portion of your experience drinking something comes from, from the smell. And that's why different, um, I mean, that's at least one of the reasons why different uh, wines and, and spirits uh, have different glassware to be enjoyed. So, for example, uh, one of the most popular ones for enjoying spirits or specifically whiskey is the Glencairn ga- glass which is has a shape that allows you to rotate the whiskey and and therefore really concentrate the smell on the top uh, before you drink it. But the Mezcalero glass, which is actually designed by a, a Mexican designer, Jose De Lao, a friend of mine, um, he, w- he designed something similar, but specifically for uh, for drinking agave spirits. So tequila, Mezcal and, and a bunch of other local uh, agave-based spirits which has, have been uh, becoming more and more popular because they are really, really interesting. I don't know if you've tried a, a lot of Mezcal or tequila, but there's really interesting uh, spirits there. And over there in the States, uh, specifically mm-hmm. in California, you have access to some of the best um, agave spirits. So this glass is designed for the same, for, for concentrating the aromas, in this mm-hmm. case of mezcal or tequila, so that you have a really, really enjoyable experience. It's, it's great. I really recommend getting one.
0: Yeah, it's, so it's kind of a, a bulbous shape that mm-hmm. kind of then widens at the top to like a kind of a funnel shape. Exactly. So it's interesting. It, it's, it's an and I interesting
2: can't thing. tell from that description or the picture about how big is it. Is it like a shot glass It's is yeah. it, um, it, larger?
1: It's small. It's small. I would say it's a bit larger than a shot glass, but uh, but much smaller than, for example, a uh, an old-fashioned glass. It's it's much smaller, but it has it holds the right amount of uh, mezcal or tequila. You know that similar to the to a shot glass, but with this different shape that allows you to much better experience the the aromas. And and would it also work drinking whiskey with it? Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it would also work. Um, it depends. I mean, for example, uh, I think there are many preferences. I mean, I think more preference with regards to how you like, how people like to drink their whiskey. So, I mean, this could work also like a Glencairn glass for drinking neat whiskey. Uh, but of course, if you want to add uh, like uh, ice, as many people like to do, specifically with uh, bourbon, for example, then both these uh, mezcalero glass or the Glenken glass wouldn't be the best. So these are mostly for drinking neat spirits, and I and I think it would it it could work as well um, for whiskey. And so for for mezcal, is
0: is it recommended that you drink it
1: at room temperature? Yeah, Okay. yeah, it's uh, very rare to put ice on on mezcal, unless. You're making a cocktail, which is also really nice, but you drink.
2: um, The the ones that you are recommending, um, they are also borosilicate, which are what we call pyrex. They're they're sort of very, um, I wouldn't say unbreakable, but they're very sturdy. Sturdy. Uh, And you have four of them for $65. Uh, Is that about right?
1: Yeah, that's about right. And and actually I would recommend getting I think uh I don't recall now if they only offer the uh, set of 4, but I definitely would recommend getting uh more than one and it this applies not only to uh to this specific glass but to any tasting glass because something that that is great and that I do very often is to pour a little bit, you know, like a dram as they say of two different whiskies or two different mezcals or tequilas. And try them next to each other because, you know, the comparison, it really makes a difference to, to get the, you know, different agaves or different sure. types of whiskey. That, that's an experience that I really, really recommend.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Well, that's, that's a very cool one. And I think that would be like an, an excellent gift also for someone. Yeah. Four for 65, that's, that's great. And this, uh, so the Lao shop, is, uh, is this based in, in um, Mexico? Yeah I imagine so the, there's shipping to internationally would might be yes. a little more but that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay that sounds good alright. So okay so uh moving on tell us about uh a book that you're reading.
1: Yeah so I'm I'm also recommending this uh this book. Uh it's not a, it's not a new one but I, I thought it was it was uh, it could fit well uh with some of the topics that i know you explore in this uh, in this podcast um and it's called uh, austerity ecology it has a very long title so it's called okay. Auster- austerity ecology and the collapse porn addicts a defense of growth progress industry and stuff uh and it's uh, written by a canadian journalist called lee phillips uh and uh so the reason why I this is an important book for me and I some a book that I recommend is that uh, you know we are specifically you know this year or every year it becomes more and more clear that we are living through a an ecological crisis right uh, but uh, at least for me and I'm sure it's, I'm not the only one the first you know reaction that you get or the the you know the almost like the default way of thinking to which you arrive once you start to get worried about this ecological crisis is something related to trying to thinking that in order to tackle this crisis you need to undo a lot of the things that we have done as civilizations so there's a lot of people that fall into what may become like anti-technological, anti-progress, anti-modernity positions. And uh, and of course Lee Phillips is not the only one, but that uh, promotes actually a different response rather than being just aimed at undoing things that we have done wrong. About it, it the book focuses on a lot of things that we should just do differently by not shying away from technology or, or modernity, but actually pushing it forward in a different way. And apart from that overall argument, I think one of the things that I like the most about this book is the uh, the, the the kind of wit or cleverness and even, at some points, even funny perspective in which uh, Lee uh, approaches the topic. So. For example, he has a, a, an excellent chapter co- uh, titled The Great Primordial Flatulence of Doom, <laughs> which is really funny. And it talks about the great oxi- uh, oxygenation event, you know, uh, when, you know, uh, ba- bacteria started to produce oxygen and all that. So uh, it approaches the topic with, you know, with scientific rigor, but also with, uh, with uh, you know, like a really funny perspective
2: so so this is a an anthology is that right if i understand it correctly
1: uh it's not an anthology it's a it's a, a monograph so it's a self contained uh book
2: okay all right um so so it's a book that he's written but um he is reporting on other people's work
1: yes he's reporting on um and he's reporting on different kinds of uh, movements and ideas that surround, you know, environmentalism in general. And I think overall, I would describe it as a kind of like a controversial, and, and you know, his style is very on purpose controversial. So, for mm-hmm. example, one of, the, one of the main mantras of the environmentalist movement is, small is beautiful. And, and he has a chapter titled Small is Not Beautiful, uh, basically contesting that idea and showing how scale planning and, you know, a lot of things that sound um, authoritarian or sound, uh, uh, you know, alien to someone that is interested in solving the ecological crisis maybe. Uh, not just important, but central to solving to solving these problems.
2: Okay, that sounds really interesting. So the book again, the name of the book is "Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts." <laughs> so he's saying that some people are kind of addicted to this idea of dystopia, Yes, yeah. and that the solution to The crisis we have, climate and otherwise, is not to pull back from technology, but to lean into it and to make it better. Exactly. That's wonderful. That sounds really great. Can you tell us a little bit about about what you are working on um, uh, these days that you wanted to share with a project that you're um, maybe engaged in and want to share with our listeners?
1: Sure. Sure. This is what I would call a research project and uh, it has different, it's still evolving and it has different outputs and the kind of outputs that it's uh, having are also evolving as opportunities arise. Uh, one, of the, one of the main uh, outputs that I originally intended to be, intended it to be the main one um, is a medium publication called Preferable, Preferable Worlds. And, and and again it's uh uh sort of like building on some of the stuff that we were just talking about in relation to to the book um the it's it's a bit i think it's a simple idea but it builds on you know some specialized theoretical ideas that are you know in in the field of future studies but also in other fields so it's not necessarily for the everyday reader even if uh, i think the you know my contribution is somewhat simple um in 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 future studies and in futures practice including for example in the work that we do at, at, at IFTF at the Institute for the Future uh one of the frameworks that we use very often is derived from uh, the futurist James Dater who uh, a few years ago proposed that uh, we can You know, analyze existing images of the future, and also generate new images of the future based on four archetypes, four different uh, generic images of the future. So we can imagine futures of growth, futures of collapse, futures of discipline or constraint, and futures of transformation. And something that I'm trying to do, or that I've sort of uh, realized, and that forms the basis of that of this publication. Is that, uh, Dator's, Dator's framework works very well, not just as the, as the tool that we use in futures, but also some, as something that I, that I call like a theoretical compass to navigate, to map, uh, important scientific and theoretical ideas that are, uh, coming up recently in fields such as economics or political science or ecology, certainly, or in social movements that are basically representatives of uh, people that today would propose or defend one of these four alternative futures to the present crisis. So, for example, you get people like Mariana Mazzucato or Carlota Perez who are proposing New and interest, uh, a new and interesting uh, conception of uh, how economic growth may uh, may evolve uh, in over the rest of the century. But at the same time, you have people specifically uh, writing in Europe, uh, authors like um, Rafael Stevens and Pablo Servigne, who propose a uh, uh, a new field of study that they call literally collapsology. And at the same time, you have people working in the field that they call degrowth, uh, whereas you have a lot of interesting authors uh, talking about terraforming and how geoengineering may be really important to address the planetary crisis. So in a way, you can use data's framework to map and orient yourself in all these different discussions that are taking place even beyond future studies. So the publication, Uh, In the publication, I'm basically making these relationships explicit and using them to explore, given that I work as a a designer, strategic designer, using them to explore how the nature of design may change over the following decades from the perspective of these four alternative futures and the specific ideas being developed that can be mapped to these four alternative futures and, and what,
2: what's an example of design changing or what's what's your guess of how design itself might change in ten years or twenty years for that matter do you imagine like using AI or do you imagine other kinds of changes
1: ahead definitely i mean you could you could you could say that for example the increasing convergence between design and um artificial intelligence or computational intelligence, etc., is uh, something that will continue to become really important. I mean, it's already quite important and will continue to be, but it's something that I would map to uh, two of these uh, alternative futures, mostly the growth future and the transformation future. Be- why? Because these are the, the, the types of futures where design evolves, around technology more clearly. But I'm also interested, and and I would say actually that most established discourses around the practice of design today and how it's evolving are looking at these existing images. So the the increasing uh, reliance on artificial intelligence, for example, to design new things. But I'm also interested in exploring what may happen if, for example, Uh, the degrowth movement, which calls for a slowdown of our economy, a radical reduction of our use of energy and materials, what if this movement were to grow and to start to become more uh, of an established power in governments around the world? So, For example, what may happen uh, if designers were uh, tasked with helping people to um, reduce their resources, their resource use, or to make more desirable or even delightful much more simpler ways of life w- without relying on so much stuff? Or what would happen with what kinds of, uh, of design practices m- may need to evolve if, as some of the authors I mentioned before, um, are right when they say that, uh, some kind of at least slow form of collapse is already inevitable. So, what would happen with design and designers and our design practices if over the next, say, 30 years, our high energy civilization would start to, to crumble slowly and slowly? What, what would be our responsibility? As designers in a collapsing world,
2: and and where are you? Where are you now with with your project? Um, what what is the status, and when might uh, other people be able to enjoy that or share that or participate?
1: Sure. So interesting uh, that that you say participate because I'm doing it also uh, as a as an open and participatory project. So next week, I don't know when this podcast will be released, but um, Uh, As part of the Primer Conference, uh, 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 an international futures conference, I'll be running a workshop uh, to explore with uh, designers and futurists, uh, you know, how design practices may evolve in these different uh, futures. So that's one output. I have done these workshops before, and I will run and facilitate a new one uh, very soon. So and the other,
2: presumably we can have a link, uh, if, if it hasn't already happened, we'll have a link sure. to your workshop um, uh, sure. it, in the show notes.
1: Yes, and, and there's one more thing uh, quickly, and this is a, a bit of a um, sneak peek, but I'm also curating an exhibition that will be inaugurated uh, in October in Spain. And, um, and in this exhibition along with a uh, more historical retrospective of uh, different images of the future uh, i have commissioned four new installations where i've uh, invited leading thinkers like carlota perez or uh, rafael stevens to collaborate with uh, design future studies to build installations that represent and to and that represent and make immersive experiences out of these four potential futures. So this is a little bit of a sneak peek, but I'll be able to show more um, in October when this is inaugurated.
2: So um, going back to, to your preferable worlds, I don't know if you recall, but I did a, a couple of years ago, I did a little contest, I would call it, an invitation where I asked people to um, submit to me um, a description of the future that they wanted, a desirable future in 100 words or less. And I paid the winner some $100 or something um, to just to encourage people to submit them. But that's up on the web somewhere. So I had them. In 100 words or less, describe a desirable future. And um, that exercise is very, very powerful. And I really applaud you in your effort to, um, you know, have people try to describe the future that they want because it makes it so much easier to get there. Um, So I'm I'm really, really enthusiastic about that. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll have links for people to kind of follow up and um, find
1: you. Thank you, Kevin.
0: Jorge, this has been fantastic talking to you and uh, getting to know you and your interests a little more. We, we've we done uh, quite a bit of work together at Institute for the Future, yep. and I've always uh, really appreciated your writing. You uh, uh, write very well in English, which is fortunate for me because uh, <laughs> I really enjoy reading your writing. So so thanks for, I, for helping I, a I, monoglot like me. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I
1: always learn so much when you edit my writing, Mark. Yeah. Oh, so uh, you are making me, <laughs> if, if I already write, uh, you know, not that bad, I, I'll be writing much better after yeah. collaborating with you. It's been Oh, great. good. Yeah, well, good. I, I'm,
2: I'm... The, the editor is always right. That's my motto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: It gets the, jo- gets the job done. Yeah. All right. Well, Jorge, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. And, uh, I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon. Yeah, thank you again.
1: really enjoyed your picks. Thank you so much. It's been great uh, talking to you.
0: Hey, everybody. It's your co-host, Mark. And I wanted to let you know that we have a lot more going on here in Cool Tools than just this podcast. We have our flagship website where we review a new tool every day. That's at cool-tools.org. We also have four different newsletters. We have this podcast. We have a YouTube channel where we review tools. And if you like what you hear and see and read, the best way to help us out is by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cool and donate at any level you wish. You can even contribute $1 a month and, and that would mean a lot to us. The money that you give us will go towards paying for our transcribing costs, editing videos and editing the podcast. It goes towards paying contributors who write the reviews for us. It goes towards our equipment costs, our hosting costs, and it supports our very small company of three people. This week, I wanted to give a shout out to some of our Patreon supporters who have been giving us at least $2 a month. And if you give us $2 a month, we'll give you a shout out online. And this week, I would like to thank Michael Saccochia, Molly Starr, M Velderman, Opposable Thumbs, Pamela Cooley, Patrick Weyer. Paul Hosey, Randy Fisher, Stuart Burroughs Brand, Synaptic Sam, Therese Schwartz, Tom Hawkins, Tom Markham, What Bear, Javier Pangolin, David Lang, Eric Byers, Sean Hartley, Stephen Powell, Greg Lichsteit, John Hobson, Adam Bristol, Adam Neher, Anonymous, Bill Kempthorne, Bruce I. Niles, Chris Woodruff, C. Kolos, Daryl Flynn, Egg Fliegoff, Eric Hanschrau, Eric Hoover, Godfrey Saldana, Jay Skiles, John M. Larson, Jude Galligan, Kenneth Gilman, and Lucas Frank. Thank you very much for supporting the show, and we will see you next week.